All right, y'all. Podcast Sean told me that I should probably do a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode because today we are talking about minimalist diets. We brought in a vegan, a carnivore, and an omnivore medical doctor to talk about those diets. But I am not a doctor, so please do not take any of the information you're about to hear as medical advice. But I do hope you really enjoy this episode about minimalist diets. The minimalists. <laughs> All right, I'm here with a vegan, a carnivore, and an omnivore. Oh, my. We're going to talk uh, some more about health today. Uh, you know, before we dive into some questions, and, and, and I want to talk about how, how simple health isn't simplistic, and I think we were sort of touching on that a little bit in the minimal episode where we are looking for the, the quick answer, the, the magic pill. I'm on some magic pills right now, some rifaximin, some antibiotics. Hopefully, they're, they're magic right now because, uh, man, I've... Uh, we're going to talk about my own health problems as well, and then we're going to get into uh, to some questions. I also want to play a round of overrated or underrated, where I do ask for some binary answers here. But uh, but but first, let's dive into. Um, actually, you know what? Let's let's just get to some questions because I've got a bunch of them, and we've got some good voicemails here. Let's start with Julie in Massachusetts. In 2015, after a long time of constant stomach pain, my doctor suggested that I go on a gluten-free diet for two weeks, and I saw immediate improvements. Then I came across the Whole30, and with my doctor's supervision, I did my first Whole30, but for 75 days. Yes, it took that long to feel better, but it worked. After a time, the pains, they came back, and... I would do a Whole30 or a two-week reset to feel better. I've noticed if I eat vegetarian, I don't feel good. If I eat too much meat, I don't feel good. And at this point, I'm frustrated and tired, and I feel like eating should be simple. How can you figure out how to eat when these diet categories like vegan and vegetarian, carnivore, paleo, and keto, they're not one size fits all? I'm hearing a lot of things here. Uh, elimination diets. I'm, I'm hearing about whole, whole 30. I'm hearing about gluten-free. Um, and things are working until they don't work. And man, that really resonates with me, right? Because uh, we were t talking during the break. Like um, Tommy and Chris really helped fix me once. Like I literally, at, at, right when I turned 37, um, last June 29th, I... Uh, felt better than I ever had in my adult life. And, and I think I owe a lot of that to, to you two guys, um, helping me figure out and eliminate a lot of things from my diet, also from my routine, um, also just getting rid of a bunch of, uh, well, through antimicrobials and chelation therapy and other things. Like we, we figured out how to make me feel good. And then I went and ruined it all. Um, yeah, I'd be just because I'm I'm relatively sensitive. So, um, I, we're hearing these 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 terms, and you know, it's fascinating to me that that Julie is is coming to this uh, from a similar place that I am. So, what would you guys recommend to her? Well, I'll go. Well, no, you guys oh, yeah, go. go. Yeah. <laughs> what I heard in that story was interesting. I think that for a lot of people, elimination diets can be quite helpful. And um, in her case, she did Whole30, so she eliminated gluten, and she said nightshades and soy and dairy. And I think that 
for a lot of people, this process of sort of simplifying their diet and seeing which foods they react to is interesting. She sort of poses this corollary question, which is when I try to eat all plants or I try to eat a vegetarian diet, I, I can't say that she's actually trying a vegan diet, or I try to eat more meat, I don't feel good. And I think it kind of goes back to something that Tommy was talking about in the minimalist, the minimal episode that we did previously, which is that the first thing I thought of you know, from my experience is that maybe she's got something else going on underlying this in her gut, you know, and that if you don't feel good eating a lot of plants, you don't feel good eating a lot of meat, then maybe there's a problem with your gut and you're just, you need to get a little more attention and kind of sort those things out. And I hope that's not a sidestep to the answer, but um, that was the first thing I thought about in that situation. And um, I think she does bring up this interesting idea that things are quite individual for people. And I think that that's a big piece of it, that People can sometimes have organisms living in their guts, as you know, Joshua, or, you know, malabsorption issues, or as Tommy talked about in the previous episode or the companion episode, they can have gram-negative overgrowth, and those can really create a different sort of uh, background upon which we can place food and can uh, obfuscate, you know, how we're reacting to food. So that would be my thought, thinking about what, um, about what she is experiencing at this point, is maybe there's a little more to dig into with her gut, because it sounds like she's working really hard at it and trying to sort you know, things out and, and trying a lot of different options. It sounds to me, though, Paul, like you believe that um, anyone would thrive more on a carnivorous diet. That's correct. That's my, that's my position. I think that you know, we can go into the reasons that I believe that, but I think that, uh, that animal foods provide the nutrients that human need, humans need in the most optimal bioavailable forms in the right ratios that humans need them. And that um, what I've seen clinically and what I've come to believe is that a lot of times for people, they will have reactions to plants because of the anti-nutrients and the, uh, the compounds in plants which are produced as defense mechanisms. So I think there's this interesting idea that for some people, the elimination of plants can create um, profound improvements in health, which is quite counterculture. Yeah, and, and it, did for, it did for me. It, it actually seemed literally insane when, when we talked about removing fiber from my diet because um, every GI I've ever gone to prescribes more fiber to me and, and things would get worse. Now, Tommy, um, didn't we evolve to be omnivores, though? That's a really good question that I'm not even sure we have the correct answer to. Um, However, uh, what what I will say is that we that humans do thrive on pretty much everywhere on this continuum between these two guys mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons, and partially they're genetic, partially they're to do with the gut microbiota, partially to do with other aspects of of the environment. And yes, our guts do look omnivorous, but that's if you're trying to compare us to other animals, it's really difficult because we're the only animal that cooks, so we can turn foods that are inedible to us into foods that are edible and potentially quite nutritious so it's very difficult you know, people often try and compare the human gut to other guts and that's quite tricky because of the fact that we do cook um when we're trying to um translate some of this over to the to the question i think probably i imagine both these guys would say well neither end was fully tried because it's more like vegetarian and there was more meat, but there was never like a true eliminate all of one and try that. And mm -hmm. so that's that's a potential place to start. Um, and, you know, both directions do work for some people, um, as well as looking in, in the gut, which I think is incredibly important with maybe some testing. Uh, the other thing to remember is that, like I said, the environment is incredibly important in terms of the health of the gut and how you can then digest or utilize the nutrients that, that come in. So what other aspects of her diet and lifestyle 
could potentially be contributing and you need to create that healthy diet and lifestyle such that you can then benefit the most from the diet that you have so that's another thing we talked about that briefly earlier that's another thing that needs to be taken into consideration it seems to me that both a whole foods plant-based diet and a carnivorous diet are sort of forms of an elimination diet in a way yeah well, they're certainly both minimal in their own unique ways, I suppose. Um, and <clears throat> I think that, that um, just to kind of piggyback on something you said a moment ago, human beings are incredibly adaptable. You know, the fact that we're both sitting across from each other, you know, healthy human beings establishes healthy, that, thriving. that, you know, you, there, are, there are a number of ways to do this. Yeah. You know, I know that what I've been doing works for me and I, you know, I'm going to continue to do it. Um, certainly, you know, I'm not going to talk you into a plant-based diet. I don't see that happening. Uh, and, and, I think we have to, and this goes back to what we were talking a moment ago and something you just mentioned, we have to look at these things not in isolation, but in the context of your uh, your entire lifestyle. Like, are you sleeping well? Do you have a meditation practice? Do you enjoy your job? How are your relationships? All of these things play into our energy levels and, and how we feel. And I think to just isolate out diet and say, well, I'm not feeling good, um, I think is myopic in, in, you know, in terms of what we can understand by looking at it more holistically. All right, we've got a question here from Connie. She wants to know about sustainability, but I've never heard the question phrased this way. So let's, uh, let's take a look. Connie from the Philippines. Do you think veganism is sustainable? Now we often hear, um, we hear about veganism in terms of sustainability, like finding a, a diet that is sustainable with respect to our planet. Now, maybe I, I don't know what she means specifically about sustainability. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's, uh, let's agree or disagree on, on this. Well, I think the word can be defined in different ways. What I heard in her question is, is it sustainable? Like, can she continue to do it long term? Mm. Um, I've been doing it for 12 years. I have you know, countless friends who have been doing it for multiple decades. So it certainly is sustainable if you do it right. Um, I don't like the word diet. I prefer lifestyle. Diet implies some kind of short-term thing with a specific endpoint and a goal. Um, for me, it's about changing behaviors and patterns around food and lifestyle to create um, an adaptation that can withstand you know, social pressures and the test of time. And I've been able to figure that out. It's a very imperfect thing and it's different for every single person, but it is certainly sustainable. I'm you know, testament to that. And and you know, lots of other people that I know have have been able to make that leap and make it stick, and you know, are thriving from MMA athletes to powerlifters and bodybuilders to runners and every kind of athlete and every person in between. Now, Paul, it, I often hear people say, like our previous question from Julie, you know, this elimination diet is not something that is permanent. And I hear people say that with a carnivorous diet as well. It's like, well, I'm going to do this until I sort of fix my symptoms, and then. I'm just going to go back to a, a healthy diet, whatever that means, right? So can we talk about the sustainability of a carnivorous diet? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, a nose-to-tail carnivore diet is what I would advocate, and that would be you know eating the whole animal so that we get all the nutrients that we need through the different compartments of the animal. And I think that you know much like we 
could look at plant-based diets. And as we discussed on the other episode, you know, if somebody says a vegetarian or a vegan diet, we don't necessarily mean the same thing. So I think it's important to clarify how we're doing any particular diet and the sort of the detail with which we're approaching it. And from my perspective, uh, a well-constructed nose to tail carnivore diet is totally sustainable. And I believe that it's uh, the source of the most optimal nutrients that a human could possibly need. So in, in the medical sphere, you know, in my practice and other practices, it's sort of, it's beginning to get appreciation. It's beginning to get notice. And people are saying, oh, this is a great elimination diet. And I would agree with that. It's a very simple way to eliminate all plant foods, which I think can trigger autoimmunity and inflammation in some susceptible people. Now, when you say eliminate all plant foods, you mean literally like, cause you're not drinking coffee today. You don't have tea. You don't have olive oil. Um, you're not going to have some kale with the, the beef that you're eating later today. Um, you, you mean literally, for you, it's eliminating all... Uh, we were talking during the break and a uh, mutual friend of all of ours, uh, Ben Greenfield, and he, he said he was on a modified carnivore diet. And and um, the, that's... You wouldn't say that about a, a plant-based diet. Like, well, I modify my plant-based diet with uh, with steak every day. Uh, right? Yeah, I think that it's it's true. That's exactly the way I constructed that a this is a whole foods animal based diet. It's entirely devoid of plants, which is something that's pretty radical. But it's based on the concept that um, if we can get all of the nutrients we need from animals in the most bioavailable forms without any of the anti nutrients and toxins found in plants, perhaps that's an ideal diet for humans. And um, a lot of people are finding significant improvements in health with that. Uh, Tell me, what do you say about that? Again, I'm going to say that it's 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 really tricky, and I'd certainly agree that um, the nutrients from animal foods are in their most bioavailable form. Usually, that doesn't mean that we can't get those nutrients from plants. I want to say that upfront, and and equally, um, when you're thinking about the evidence that might exist for one way being better than the other, I truly believe that does not exist. Um, there are uh, randomized controlled trials where they add beef to the diet and sometimes inflammation improves. There's definitely no um, no signal that, um, that it's bad for you, uh, unlike what may be said elsewhere. However, equally, if you look at all the evidence that exists elsewhere, there's no signal that says plants are increasing disease or make you sicker. And um, there are also randomized controlled trials where they add plants to the diet and nothing bad happens, certainly. Um, although there's most of the times when a plant-based diet has been shown to be beneficial, it's largely because other things are changed or things are taken out of the diet. So I would say that you know there's, there's definite merit to that. I do agree with the, the quality of the nutrients that come from animal foods, but I don't believe that there's a signal that says that plants are inherently bad for us. The best I've ever felt, um, other than those, those two months where I was doing basically autoimmune paleo diet which was very similar was very close to i guess it would be what ben would call a modified carnivore diet uh, i was eating meat and greens and uh, coffee because i really enjoy coffee uh, i know paul is, is upset about this but um uh, and and but i had eliminated just about everything now there are a few times where you've had me do long fasts like six day fasts and i felt amazing uh yeah after day three and all the hunger sort of gone I can tell you that diet's not sustainable. <laughs> uh, just a, a long-term fast. Eventually, that will not end well. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think what we're, what we're talking about here is there are some foods that really trigger us. 
and they trigger our inflammation or they, they really disrupt our, our, our gut biome and all of a sudden we, we feel bad because of it. I could tell you that over the last seven months, first time in my life I've ever felt depression-like symptoms. I've never been diagnosed with depression, but it's the, it's the, yeah, it's waking up in the morning and being like, wow, I, I don't want to get out of bed today. And apparently, what, 90% of our serotonin is, is uh, our gut is responsible for about 90% of it? Yeah, but that roughly. doesn't mean that it gets to your brain or does anything up there. Okay. So that's true. It's made in the gut, and serotonin is the mo most important or most abundant neurotransmitter in the enteric nervous system, the nervous system in the gut. But that doesn't necessarily tell you that serotonin in the gut has anything to do with serotonin in the brain. That's anything kind of. Anything to do with. It, we do, I mean, it's very, it's incredibly difficult to study, and it's mm. certainly not been studied in humans. And the idea that serotonin is connected with depression is an anachronism. So. You think so? Yeah, that's the monoamine hypothesis, and it's essentially. Okay, know. what does that mean? Uh, so the monoamine hypothesis is this sort of antiquated idea of long term, you know, psychiatry that depression is not enough serotonin in the synapse. And this is gone by the wayside it's just this, this overly like the, the ssri mm -hmm. so when we're using ssri medications these are selective like Prozac kind mm -hmm. of, okay. selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors they're going to inhibit this uh, serotonin reuptake transporter which moves the serotonin from the intraneuronal synapse back into the neuron and that will increase the amount of serotonin in the synapse and what's interesting about these medications is these are the ones that have been studied for depression there's lots of conflicting controversial research about whether they work whether it's an active placebo effect etc cetera, etc cetera. And the idea is that this is an overly simplistic sort of hypothesis or paradigm to imagine that depression is not enough serotonin in the synapse in the first place. I think that there's the, the strongest evidence now is that depression and probably many psychiatric conditions have to do with immunologic activation or autoimmunity inflammation within the brain. So overactivation or incorrect activation of the immune system in the brain. These are microglial cells, brain-derived macrophages that appear to be turned on. We see this in many brain conditions, even outside of psychiatric conditions like Alzheimer's or neurodegenerative disease. But the idea that there's not enough serotonin in the synapse is, is probably not what's going on in depression. Gotcha. Or, or, or it's a much smaller component. If Small piece of it, yeah. Okay. Because well, if we look at it, when you take a serotonin, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the People amount of, do get better quite often. Well, they... This is the, here's the thing they do sometimes and uh, but the amount of serotonin in the synapse is immediately increased but what we see clinically is that people often don't get better for a few weeks right so if it's if it's if it's increasing the amount of serotonin in the synapse that's helpful why does it take three to four weeks or six weeks for an SSRI medication to work in those in who it works in many people it doesn't work I think that the response rates in the studies if we look at the psychiatric studies are, are actually pretty low and often don't even separate from placebo in mild to moderate depression you have to get to moderate to severe depression to even see the signal with SSRIs but that's a whole other rabbit hole so let's talk a little bit about, we can get to, to more about inflammation because I, I have some questions about that and I think we may even have a question from, from the audience here. What does an average day of eating look like? Now, someone like Rich who, I mean, you're, you're very active and so you require more calories than uh, your average sort of sedentary American. But what does an average day of eating look like for you? It varies depending upon how much I'm training. Um, there is a, a bit of a common misconception that I must be just e eating constantly all day long, especially since I only eat plants uh, and given the training load that I put my body through. But it's actually not the case. Like I've adapted to a lot of the training and, you know, what would appear or what would have been um, uh, rigorous for me, you know, eight years ago or whatever is now like taking a walk. So it doesn't, you know, 
uh, it doesn't create the kind of caloric needs uh, that it once did. But to answer your question, I mean, basically, I'll wake up in the morning, I'll have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and quite often, I'll just go out and train without eating anything. I'll do it on a, in, a, in a sort of semi-fasted state, mm-hmm. um, you know, a run of up to two hours or two and a half hours or a bike ride up to three hours or four or 5,000 yards in the pool, and then I can eat afterwards. But when I do eat in the morning, it would be um, generally a, uh, a smoothie based in dark leafy greens, maybe some beets and some beet greens, uh, chia seeds, flax seeds, some berries like blackberries and blueberries, coconut water, something like that, just depending upon what we happen to have in the fridge. Uh, if I'm super hungry or I'm training really hard that day, some gluten-free toast with almond butter, and I'm pretty much good to go. So are we uh, all agreeing that gluten is a bad thing? <laughs> for me, it is. I mean, I, I you know, I'm not a celiac, but yeah. I do notice that when I eat gluten, it makes me lethargic. I get puffy-eyed, like there is definitely an inflammatory response that occurs when I eat gluten, so Uh I try to avoid it. I'm not perfect in that regard, though. Um, And then I I generally eat fairly light throughout the day, like a big salad maybe for lunch after a training session, Uh, and then I'll graze on fruits, nuts, and seeds throughout the day, a lot of bananas, dates, um, almonds, uh, brew nuts. Those are my new obsession. I love brew nuts. Brew, I have to bring you some. They're really good. Um, you know, lots of fruits and nuts, basically. Okay. And then I'll eat a larger dinner. Um, lots of rice and beans. Um, quite a bit of starches, potatoes, things like that. Uh, veggie burritos. My wife's an insane cook, so I yeah. leave it up to her to prepare dinner, and I kind of go crazy How with dinner. How many cookbooks do, do you all have, Al? We have three okay. cookbooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean, let's put a link to, yeah. to those in the show notes as well. Um, you know, I'll be uh, just being honest. Like his diet sounds so much tastier than yours. Uh, he's like, well, it's a raw liver, or do I want the rice and the beans and the you know the pasta or what? Yeah, gluten free, you know, whatever. And it's um, and and for me, like I, I gravitate more toward that. And then also the ethics, which we'll which we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, to me, that sounds like an ideal day of eating, and also. Um, just based on the, where I've been so far, it sounds like a very healthy day of eating. And I think for you, it certainly is. It, it works for me. Right. And if, if I were to eat that, which I would love to, by the way, just to be clear, um, I would be in so much pain. Um, the inflammation uh, in my joints. I, I played basketball in high school. And like uh, the other day after I ate half a sweet potato, I literally, I felt like I rolled bo- both of my ankles. I woke up in the morning my back was on fire. My wrists were on fire. Um, and my ankles just, they weren't swollen, but they felt like they should be. And so I hear about this this day of eating, and it works really well for you. Why doesn't this work for me, Tommy? Oh, um, that's a great question. There's um, there's definitely something weird going on in your gut. That, like, we, figured, we figured out <laughs> we that We know much. this from all the tests, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, in fact, Chris uh, was sharing my U-Biome results. I guess he ran it through some magical calculator that he has. And um, uh, my gut is 96% more diverse than everyone else they had tested, which sounds great, except it's all the bad guys. It's as diverse as, like, a prison is diverse, like... There's just a bunch of uh, criminals who happen to be there in my gut, and they're not allowing me to eat any of this stuff. Well, one would probably argue that the U.S. penal system 
doesn't allow for as much diversity as perhaps I there should be. US. But that's, was, that's, a, that's I, maybe I, I a, was, different that's a different that's a, that's a different podcast. I was talking about Iceland. Uh, oh, yeah. So in, in Iceland, in a maximum security prison, if you kick your soccer ball over the fence, you just go under the fence, go and get it, and then go back in. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a completely different environment. Well, that's just how my gut, because I have leaky gut. They are literally going over the fence and, yeah. and, and going to the rest of my body, apparently. Yeah, so they don't come back. Oh, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of... So the, the gut microbiota really help digest a lot of the things that the um, the rich is consuming, and so earlier Paul mentioned uh, oxalates, and there is there are uh, bacteria called oxalobacter which are really important to help you metabolize that, but they're also really susceptible to antibiotics. So there are a number of people who are very sen sensitive to oxalates, um, and it's because they can no longer handle them now. How what are you oxalates for, for people? So listening? oxalates are it's it's um. Is it three, four? Two, two carbon. Is it two carbon? It's a, it's a, it's a two carbon um, acid, organic acid, that's in plants. And it basically collates and binds to minerals. So often people um, can find, if they have issues with heavy metals, oxalates can bind to those and uh, settle in joints and things like that. And um, then they, they might prevent you from... Um, from absorbing certain things so if, if anybody's ever um told you not to eat rhubarb leaves that's because they're super high in oxalate so much that i mean they'll kill you it's 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 deadly um but people can tolerate them if they have oxalobacter in their gut what foods are high in oxalates many foods that rich just mentioned unfortunately so we're looking at basically nuts seeds and beans are very high in oxalates the other offenders seeds including coffee uh, well, I mean, you're not, I don't know how much oxalate is in coffee. You're not eating the bean. You're just brewing it. Speak so. for yourself. Yeah, right. You don't eat the coffee beans. But then we've got beets are high in oxalates. Rhubarb is high in oxalates. Some kale species are high in oxalates. Um, spinach. Spinach is very high in oxalates. And there's, there's documented cases of people with oxalate nephropathy. That is re that? renal damage or renal failure from oxalates. There's a study that I posted, you know, green smoothie cleanse and oxalate nephropathy leading to hospitalization and frank kidney failure. Um, the main kidney stone that people get is calcium oxalate kidney stone, and that's related to oxalates in our foods. So I always thought that was from like Diet Coke. No, that's from that's from the is oxalates. Aspartame bad for us? Are we all agreeing that aspartame <laughs> is bad? Not a fan of that either. But okay. yeah, there's a lot of oxalates in plants, and they're a big issue. You know, I mean, they deposit in joints. I was just talking at the break, and I mean, there's evidence that after the age of 55, over 85% of people that they've looked at had oxalate crystal deposits in their thyroid. We don't make oxalates in the human body. Well, we, I should say we make them as we process certain amino acids, but they're not used in human biochemistry and they're basically just a waste product. So when we're taking in large amounts of oxalates, it sort of relies on either our, our oxalobacter formigenes or our body's ability to excrete them properly. And if either of those are impaired or we overwhelm them, we can end up with oxalates and kidney stones and joints, kidney failure. There are documented cases of death related to oxalates. And so... Um I guess what you're saying is remove plants if you're having if you have issue with oxalates, but you have it. You you assume that everyone has some sort of issue with oxalates. Well, I don't think there's any utility to oxalates. I don't think I've never seen an actual medical. There's no benefit to oxalates in the human body. They're a waste product and they're a detoxification product. This kind of gets to the idea that plants and humans, 
plants and mammals are different operating systems and plants have a lot of molecules that they use in their operating system that we don't use in ours. And this is one of the things that I think is intriguing about an animal-based diet is when we eat other animals, when we're eating mammals, we're eating from the same operating system that we're a part of. Our biochemistry looks much more like another animal's. And the molecules that we take in are much more similar to ours and they work better in our biochemistry. Obviously, this is an oversimplification, but this is one of my concerns about plants, that there are tons and tons of molecules in plants that are very different than what we're used to. Oxalates is just one example. It sounds to me like if I were to simplify this a little bit, um, what you're saying is um, we plants don't have legs, so they can't run from us, so they, they develop other defense mechanisms. Is that a fair way of characterizing this? That's exactly the situation that over the course of the last millions of years of you know human and plant evolution, animal and plant evolution predating humans, Plants can't move away, so they've developed toxins, and what we're looking at is how every individual human is able to process those toxins and how to deal with that. And we have examples of people being able to to process them very well. I mean, I think of my wife as, as a prime example. She's a dietitian. She's a nutritionist. She worked at the university for a decade helping people, and she has to be one of the healthiest, fittest people I know and eats a mostly plant-based diet, uh, mostly out of preference. You know, she'll eat, she'll eat meats and, and doesn't have a, a problem with that. But um, in terms of just uh, her palate has developed to enjoy plants. And, and to be frank, so has mine. It's just my body uh, rejects them pretty significantly. And so I'm listening to my body and, and trying to do what, what is right for me so that, so that I can get better. And I think ultimately people listening to this, that's the, the takeaway here is what, is what is right for your body. Can, we, not, get, can we get a day of pools eating? What? Can oh. we get a day of pools diet? I, I, I just meet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, it's very different than what we've heard so far. So we talked about this on the on the companion episode, but I, I believe in nose-to-tail eating, and I'm eating a whole foods animal-based diet. So I'm trying to eat the entire animal. It's not in all raw liver, and I don't think people need to eat raw liver. It's just one of the quirky things I have. You can cook the liver. Now, here's the thing. You yeah. can cook the liver. There are, just like there are raw vegans, there are raw carnivores as well. Is that is that right? There are. I'm not I'm not a raw carnivore, but... Okay. Um, so in a day, I, I'm going to eat all of you know animal products. I don't eat any plants in a day for some of the reasons we were talking about. So in the morning, I generally eat two meals a day, um, and I'll try and eat it in a sort of a small window. I like to do a time-restricted eating practice on most days. So I'll get up and... You know, I'll eat breakfast in mid-morning, and breakfast usually consists of um, some egg yolks. Um, I eat some liver. I'll often eat some salmon roe, and then I'll eat some um, grass-fed steak, and it can be different cuts. And then depending on the fattiness of the meat, I'll sometimes add fat to that. I'll get, you know, specific just pieces of fat that I'll sort of fry up or cook up, and I'll eat that with the, the animal meat. So that's breakfast, and that's that's pretty much how it goes. And so I'm trying to construct, you know, all the pieces of the animal and, you know, the different nutrient compartments. And, um, yeah. And then lunch is, late lunch is pretty similar. And you know, there's some variety. I, I'm a little bit careful with what fish I eat. Like you mentioned, you had some heavy metal toxicity with a mm-hmm. uh, pescatarian diet. So if I'm going to eat fish, I'll have a low mercury fish or sardines. Like sardines. Yeah, sardines or wild salmon. But even wild salmon now appears to have some heavy metal contamination, unfortunately. So I'll certainly avoid the larger fishes or fish. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll vary it up. You know, I'm basically eating... You know, I'll eat chicken occasionally. I'll eat some fish occasionally. I 
generally don't eat much pork because it's hard to find organic pork. It's hard to find pork that I have a good sense of how well it's raised and you know what it's eating. Um, but you know, pork is one of the meats that we could eat on a carnivorous diet. And I'll try to eat different parts of the animal, things I haven't tried. You know, lengua or tongue or different no poultry. Uh, you know, chicken I'll eat occasionally, but it's just not as rewarding. I think that the red meat, the ruminants are just more nutrient dense. It's occasional, but okay. it's rare. Yeah. So often those are the kind of the, the foods that make up the majority of my diet. The what I would say are probably the most nutrient dense animal foods there are: egg yolks, liver, muscle meats, um, and well processed, lightly cooked, you know, animal fats. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it sounds to me like twice a day you're eating generally. Now, what, what do you say to someone who, like me, is sensitive to eggs and to even to salmon roe? I, I have a, a sensitivity to that. Like it just, it makes me feel, uh, the salmon roe in particular makes me feel sort of brain foggy. Do you have a histamine sensitivity? Yeah. Yeah. That, that could be it. Yeah. I mean, there definitely are some foods that are cured and um, if people have histamine sensitivities, they may have reactions to that. People sometimes will use bone broths on carnivore diets. Those can trigger people with histamine sensitivities as well. Um, if you have an egg sensitivity to eggs, I think it's often important to think about whether you're reacting to the yolk or the white. Mm-hmm. People do react to the white um, immunologically from time to time. And I don't, I don't eat egg whites. I just eat the yolk. Okay. Um, um, I don't tend to react to that. So, But certainly there are people that you know, can react to either fermented foods because of histamine issues or eggs or dairy. I don't include dairy on in my diet for that reason too. I think that it's sometimes a trigger for people. Yeah. And a lot of people in, in your community do include dairy and, and also honey, right? Uh, some people include dairy. I, I generally discourage it. I, you know, I've seen that, you know, there are issues with like casein and casomorphin and Way can be, you know, immunologically activating for people, and generally satiety mechanisms seem to be a little bit altered by casomorphin. It's one of these sort of opiate-like compounds. Well, there's one that occurs in gluten called gluteomorphin, and there's another that occurs in milk called casomorphin, which is a breakdown product of casein. And so, I've found generally that when people are eating milk, they tend to have not quite as good of a satiety mechanism, and uh, often the removal of milk and dairy improves people who are otherwise kind of stuck. But honey can be included on a carnivore diet. I mean, if you're thinking about basically the idea is we want to get nutrient dense food that it may not have, you know, these plant toxins in it. And I don't know that I would consider honey to be nutrient dense. It's certainly calorically dense and right. some people enjoy it. And, but I think even if you look at like, you know, living hunter gatherers, if they overconsume honey, it's not good for their mouth and their dentition. So I'm not, I don't really formulate honey as a, as a healthful food, but you know, I don't, I'm not aware of any anti-nutrients or toxins that are in honey per se, but most people I think on carnivore diets don't eat honey. Now, when I was on autoimmune paleo diet, right around day 50, I, my sleep started tanking. And I think a lot of it had to do with the, the lack of, of carbs that were in, in my diet at that point. Um, and I, I noticed my sleep was, I'll say amazing. You had me do the elemental diet for, I think I failed after six days. Um, but, um, which is essentially, I mean, it's a sugar diet with a bunch of, uh, well, you can explain it better than I, I, I could, but I was sleeping for 12 hours a night because my body was like, it, it needed, I don't know, recovery or, or what was going on there. So the elemental diet is, is basically food in its most elemental form. So it's, basic 
sugars, often glucose, basic amino acids rather than as protein. So you don't need to digest them. They just come like that. Right. And then um, some some basic fats, uh, sometimes uh, medium chain triglycerides, which don't require much di- digestion. They get um, metabolized very quickly in the liver. And it's a drink. I'm, I'm just drinking yeah, it's all. A, it's you have a, to sip it because otherwise you literally yeah. start shaking. Yeah. And it's been shown to be beneficial in people with... Uh, uh, irritable bowel syndrome or uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because you're basically starving the bacteria in the gut of anything for them to to eat because it all gets absorbed very quickly so there's nothing left for them essentially but it's only really beneficial for two to three weeks and anything more um does, isn't isn't more beneficial and there are some potential downsides so it doesn't seem to be great for blood sugar regulation because it's just no. purified nutrients and glucose that's sort of intravenously almost being in, uh, sort of being consumed in the body um however from the sleep side there is some uh, evidence that a high glycemic index meal during the day can improve sleep now it's not necessarily required for everybody like Paul sleeps great and he doesn't need high glycemic carbohydrates do to great? do that. Yeah, I sleep really well. I think it has to do probably with the amount of tryptophan and yeah, whether so, yeah. whether we're going to drive tryptophan into the brain. Yeah. If you're eating a limited amount of tryptophan in your diet, then you know a high carbohydrate meal will help that tryptophan move across the blood-brain barrier. So where do I get tryptophan? Meat. I, I always hear about it from turkey on Thanksgiving. But that's I mean, I, I suppose there is tryptophan in, in plant products as well, but I think of it from, I mean, tryptophan is in animal foods. And uh-huh. I think one of the reasons that perhaps... I mean, the reason we're talking about tryptophan and is that tryptophan is a precursor to melatonin, which is one of these sort of circadian regulating hormones. And if you eat a lot of tryptophan, you know, you, you'll get plenty of it moving across the blood-brain barrier. But um, I think that it has to do, you know, if yeah. we're eating a small amount of tryptophan, then then a high glycemic index meal may help move that small amount of tryptophan across the blood-brain barrier. It, or, it reduces competition for tryptophan yeah. to get in because the, the insulin pushes amino acids that compete with tryptophan to get into the brain into the muscles instead generally so then the tryptophan it's easier for the tryptophan that you do have to get into the brain so that's well that's the hypothesis certainly rich how are you sleeping i sleep great <laughs> <laughs> i sleep in a tent what i told you that didn't i no yeah i've been sleeping outside for like two years no kidding yeah what what prompted this um i have had uh, I grew up poor, so I never want to go camping yeah, right. again. Like, like <laughs> we would have the electricity turned off all the time, and like to me, it's like it's. My wife's always like going. She's going camping this weekend with our daughter. I'm like, leave me out of this. Like, I, I don't. I want nothing to do with this. I like having air conditioning and and uh, and 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 you know, not dealing with that. But you sleep in a tent every night. So you will. You you will. Uh Admit though, when people go camping and they come back and they're like, oh my God, I slept so great under the stars. I had the deepest sleep. Like that's the experience that I have. Mm. And I wanna experience that every night. And we live in a warm climate and sleep quality is really important to me. So I started experimenting with it a while back. Uh, and Dr. part Walker? of it was- Did you have Dr. Walker on your show? No, Matthew but Walker? I, I, I know of his work okay. and his amazing book and all of that. Um, it, it was precipitated originally by uh, this ongoing, I've been with my wife for 20 years and we've had this ongoing battle. She likes the bedroom warm. I like it cold, like the colder, the better. Like if it was 32 Same. degrees in the bedroom, I would be delighted, right? Amen. And she wants it like 80. Yeah. And n- 
none of us are happy. Like she's either under all these covers, miserable, and I'm sleeping on top of the covers or vice versa. Um, so I was like, well, I'm just gonna sleep outside tonight. It started as like a gag, a joke. She's like, go for it. And I did, and I had an amazing night of sleep. And it just kind of morphed into this thing over time that I really enjoy, so. That's really cool, yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Um, this goes back to all the, yeah. you know, we talked about all the other things being important. So um, Rich is getting light when it's light outside, dark yeah. when it's dark outside. It's cool, which definitely helps foster sleep. So like, again, you can focus on all the things that might happen in the diet to, mm. to make you sleep better, but for proper quality sleep, you know, light at the right time of day, darkness at the right time of day, the right temperature at the right time of day. It's supposed to be colder at nighttime. So, I mean, I know my wife is the same. We always, I always, I'm always too hot and she's always yeah, too, yeah. too cold in the, in the bedroom. <laughs> so we're exactly the same. I, I appreciate the problem, but like that's super important for, for proper quality sleep. So again, it can go so far beyond what you're eating. Yeah, Absolutely. I'll, I'll be curious to hear about your setup later. I want to get a, I want to get, the, I want to get the inside. <laughs> I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail when I was much younger in my previous life. And so I spent three and a half months on the trail. You know, this is the trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. And I spent every night on in, in, on the smallest little thin pad and I had amazing sleep and I came off the trail and I didn't sleep indoors for probably four to five months and people thought I was crazy and I loved it. And then somehow I made the mistake of getting to sleep on beds again and it's been, you know, I've been away from the natural world ever since. My other big sleep tip, I got this thing called a gravity blanket. Do you know about this? Yeah, my daughter has one and like, she calls it a Zen blanket. It's the most amazing thing. Yeah, she is she is really into it. I love it. Yeah, I've I've never I've never used it myself. But so wait, gravity blanket. But you can do that because it, it doesn't it doesn't make you super hot because you're sleeping where it's cold colder. Yeah, it's less for the heat containment and more for like the weight. Yeah. Um, the sensation of, of feeling like grounded, it's almost like it's telling my nervous system like you can relax now, like you're safe. I don't know, you, you may have a, uh, a physiological explanation for it, but um, it's definitely enhanced the, the quality of my sleep. Tommy, what are you eating yeah. on a daily basis? Just whey protein shakes all oh, day? Yeah, just slamming protein shakes and protein Protein shakes and deadlifts, that's yeah, all I yeah. eat. Yeah. Um, we actually did some deadlifts together the other day, that was we a lot did. of fun. We did. Um, so I probably eat somewhere right between what these two guys eat. Um, so like if, if the three of you were staying in a house, this would be a great reality TV show. Like you would just go like take yeah, food I'd eat everybody's food. Yeah, that would that literally is is my life. Um, so I'm it, it's important to me where my food comes from, how it's grown, uh, or how it's raised. Um, so I try to eat nose to tail animals, but I also eat a lot of plants, and I like them to be organic. I like it to be sustainably farmed as much as possible. Um, and I don't eat very many refined carbohydrates. Um, I try not to consume any seed oils because I, you know, they're one of the things that we've added to the diet uh, recently that have pretty much zero benefit for the human body. Like canola oil. Yeah, exactly. Canola, soybean, um, sunflower in the UK, they use a lot. Okay. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's 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 somewhere b between these two guys. Yeah. Plants, animals, nuts and seeds is, yeah. is what you eat. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you eat the plants, nuts, and seeds, and then the animals. Rich and I would be amazing roommates because we would never <laughs> eat each other's food. Yeah. <laughs> be like, it would never happen. We wouldn't I, have to put our names on anything. You go in the kitchen at 2 a.m., they're both eating Pop-Tarts. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got some more questions here. Uh, Jason in North Carolina has a question about supplements. What is your take on supplements? I know there are people like Ray Kurzweil who say take 50 or more. And how do you determine which ones actually build value into your life, which ones actually work? Any resources would be great. 
All right, I've just emptied my, my pocket. This is one-third of my daily. This is way less than I used to take. When you all were healing me, Tommy and Chris, um, there was a time I sent Chris a picture of my kitchen counter. I was going traveling for a week, and I was taking 112 pills a day. Now, a lot of these were, were uh, chelating agents to deal with the uh, uh, heavy metals, right? And so um, you guys had me doing like just uh, a ton of them. But the thing that I was talking to, to Chris about was... Um, we ultimately want to have as few supplements as possible because we want to get the nutrition from the nutrients from our food. So, Rich, I know one of the concerns with a plant-based diet is like maybe we're missing what B12 or omega-3s. Do do you supplement with? Uh, with I occasionally supplement with B12, and that's it, pretty okay. much. I'll occasionally. Uh, use some uh, plant-based protein powder, but that's like maybe once or twice a week. It's hardly a daily occurrence. Okay. Yeah, okay. I had my blood work done maybe six months ago and everything was copacetic. Now what about you, Mr. Saladino? I'm not a fan of supplements. I think that uh, it's been an interesting journey, but I think that you know, doing a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, it's eating the organs and stuff. I don't think there's much, I don't do any supplements at this point. I just try and consume, you know, the, the rich sources of the different nutrients and, you know, intentionally look at where I'm getting various things. But yeah, for me, there's, there's no supplements right now. Occasionally, if I'm traveling and don't have access to organ meat, I may take these pills uh, here, these, these beef liver, desiccated, desiccated beef, beef liver, liver organ yeah. pills. Yep. From ancestral supplements. Yeah. That's what these that, are. That'd be about it for me if I'm traveling, but if I can get the fresh liver, I'll use that in its place. Yeah. You don't like, um, you don't like fish oil? Not a fan of the fish oil, no. Okay, what about these multivitamins that I have here from Thorn? I'm not a fan of that either, honestly. I mean, I trust these guys who are recommending them to you. I would certainly, you know. Well, and just to be clear, um, uh, Chris has always recommended eat just eating sardines every day, which I eat a lot of days, but I don't always. Um, and so the days that I don't, I will. In fact, we have a case of them here. I will. I will just. I will pop a fish oil pill now. Now it sounds to me like there's downsides to this. I think there are, and it's you'd have to look at every individual fish oil pill that you're that you're consuming. But there's good evidence that many of them have high levels of lipid peroxides and kind of just oxidized lipids. So the the omega threes are quite fragile molecules. They have multiple double bonds, and those double bonds are susceptible to oxidation. And without getting into kind of the esoteric chemistry of that, we don't want fats to oxidize. It's kind of what Tommy was referring to earlier when he's talking about rancid oils and the concern with vegetable oils, which are usually omega-6 fatty acids, is that they're going to become rancid or oxidized. And my concern is that a lot of the commercialized fish oils are are quite rancid and oxidized. And you know maybe they can produce some that are going to be better than others, but it's important to know if you're going to take a fish oil pill what the level of lipid peroxides are in that. And I think that that's why consuming it in a food form is, is a better thing because if you look at the food form, it's, it has sort of built into the, the food matrix are things which will prevent the oxidation of those molecules, generally speaking. Look what we found. We found some more common ground, little or no supplementation. Tommy, what say you? Yeah, uh, exactly the same. I, I think the goal is always to need zero supplements if if possible when i'm working hard like trying to gain strength in the gym i'll take some creatine um because that that certainly seems to help and it also um can support multiple pathways uh, beyond uh, just uh, strength gain uh, i will sometimes take a protein shake after the gym if i haven't had a lot to eat that day um that's about it yeah there you go i just i don't know i mean i think there's some interesting data i'll just add this as sort of a little i'll just drop this on the table and let people respond to it but you know there are studies with 
vegetarians and vegans that when they supplement creatine, it has pretty profound improvements, I think in IQ and mental performance and muscle gain as well. So one of the concerns I have about plant-based diets is inadequate creatine. What about, what about, I, I did talk to when I first, uh, started working with Tommy and Chris at Nourish, Balance, Thrive, they, they recommended, you know, I need to get a, a source of, of, of omega-3s and I didn't hear Rich talk about supplementing with omega-3s. How, how do, how do you get omega-3s now? Um, by eating a diversity, a wide diversity of plant foods. I mean, I eat a lot of uh, seeds, chia seeds, flax seeds, hemp seeds, all high in omega-3. Um, and I don't seem to have any issue with that. Maybe it's the way that I metabolize my food, but uh, it seemed to work the, for there me. There certainly seems, seems to be a me. genetic component. Yeah. So some people are really good at making, so uh, the omega-3 in plants, so chia seeds is uh, alpha-linolenic acid linolenic acid, which some people are really good at turning into the longer chain fat, fat, omega-3 fats that you might get from fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people just can't do it very well. So there certainly seems to be a genetic component to that. So maybe Rich is somebody who's really, really efficient at that process. Or okay. animals. You know, the DPA mm-hmm. specifically is one of the long chain omega-3s that is found in ruminants specifically. You know, like the DHA and the EPA are in the fish. And then the DPA is in omega-3 that's in ruminants. And that's beneficial for humans. From seals. DPA. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, there were, was a professor where a, an emeritus professor where I did my PhD, and he he took seal oil, and so he could get his DPA. I couldn't. They were out. I, mean, I went to Whole Foods, <laughs> and they were out of this, seal blood. This blubber. was in Norway. So Believe me, I would eat it. Good. Like I would eat it. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. I, I, we're, we're saying this. It seems to me that that uh, a plant based diet is much more easy to. It, it's weird. Like, there's this. It's a paradox almost. It's easier to adhere to a plant based diet because of the the more options, right? But then, of course, y- y- I think. Your diet is is as a uh, a carnivore is easier in a different way. Although it seems like it'd be appreciably harder while you're traveling. You're traveling right now. Do you find that it's harder as you're traveling? It's not too bad. I mean, one of the things that I like about a nose to tail carnivore diet is that it's very it's simple. You know, there are a few foods that I know that are quite nutrient rich, and basically there's liver. And there's meat, and that's about where, you know, that's about all I need. And so I can make liver jerky, I can bring it on the plane, I can bring some jerky that I've made, you know, and I can bring that on the plane, and if I can't get to a grocery store. But, it, you know, it actually goes back to kind of the thing we were talking about earlier about the investment that you make in your health. And for me, it's a priority, you know. Yeah. When I travel, I think, where am I staying? Where's my rental car? And where's the grocery store where I'm going to get the food that I'm going to eat. And those are the first three things. And I also think about water, actually. So I go to the grocery store and I want to get, you know, spring water or good quality water because I don't want to drink the tap water. And so those are the, that's the priority when I get somewhere. It's like, I got to get off the plane. I got to get into my Uber or my Turo and I got to get to my Airbnb. And then I have to get to the grocery store to get my food. And that's just my priority, you know? And so that's just how I invest my time and mental energy is procuring a few simple foods that are nutrient rich. And then I can, you know, get get the rest of the foods if I, if I need over the course of the trip. So it's pretty straightforward. I remember talking to Rich about this on the, the podcast we did together. I'll we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes, Sean. But you, you do a very similar thing. It's like yeah, I was going to say that's kind of exactly what I do. Like with a little bit of intentionality and a forethought, you can just find that you know natural foods market that's you know in between the airport and wherever you're staying and go there before you even check in right i try to stay at places that have a little kitchenette or a place where you know a, a refrigerator where i can prepare my foods and people there's something weird about travel that just completely freaks people out because i think it's just being contained in a tube you know makes them panicky or something but 
you know, unless you're traveling internationally, you're looking at like, you know, I don't know, five or six hours at the most, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you just bring a few things with you or forget completely, you're left with yourself. It's now that's a, truly a, terrifying, but trust me, you sometimes. are not going to starve. Yeah. It's going to be fast. okay. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely yeah. therapeutic. It's, it's okay to fast. It's not the end like, of the world. Oh my God, I got to go. I got to get to the airport and they pack these massive, you know, bags worth of, it's like, you're not going camping. You know, you're going to be fine. In a couple hours, you will reach your destination, and, and you will be can, breathing. We can overeat that way if we're just going to pack I everything. Most, I think most people do. Yeah, and and I, I've I heard Jocko Willing talk about this once. He, he people ask you, do you want the uh, the pasta or the chicken? And when you're on the plane, he said, "There's a third option. You just don't eat anything." Right. And that, for whatever reason, stuck with me because, like, yeah, there is always that third option that we we forget about, and we we. It seems that both of you do some sort of, you know, we can call it intermittent fasting or, or time-restricted window or whatever, um, and it's okay to not have, we, we've been sold this meme of like, the most important meal of the day, have your Cheerios and your toast, and you're like, well, that's probably not the best thing, that's not the, not the best way to start the day, I think we all agree to, to that. I liked what Rich said about just being left by yourself, and I think that sometimes we use food as entertainment, and we're looking to fill space with food, we're looking to fill dead time with entertainment, and I love this idea of just kind of facing the reality of just being calm and not eating and maybe just being with ourselves it kind of ties it back into like lifestyle and meditation or mindfulness but i think that as humans you know on planes or long car trips we're often trying to fill the space with something and i like that idea of just saying hey just just be by yourself you know just be with yourself or the people you're with and don't fill it with something i would take it one step further and and say that we're not just using food as entertainment, we're using it to try to fill some emotional void that we're experiencing because we're discontent with our lives in some way or another. And food is our medicine. Um, And I would venture to say that there are millions of people who are addicted to their food choices uh, along some form of spectrum. We use food to medicate ourselves, to take us out of whatever we're feeling or experiencing. And it is true to be left by yourself with your thoughts for a lot of people is a terrifying prospect. And I think connecting with that and really getting in touch with the fact that we use food as an emotional device is the first step in kind of breaking that denial and creating a trajectory forward. I know for me growing up, you know, I was I was morbidly obese. I was 12 years old, weighed 230 pounds. Um, it's so hard to picture that. I, I know, yeah. right? It's but I, I, I was when Ryan and I met. Uh, literally, we were the two fattest kids in school. And that's why, like, he had just moved to the town that I was in, and and like we bonded over cheese fries, basically. And the the thing that I, I realized, like at the time, I was there was an emotional component. Like I was pacifying myself. It was the the only th- my life was so out of control. We were so. Uh, it was just alcohol, drug abuse, all, all these things in the house. And um, it was the one thing I could control. Like, oh, I can eat this peanut butter sandwich or this loaf of bread and this jar of peanut butter. Like, I, this was the one thing I, I had control over. And I didn't really, you know, obviously, at 12 years old, I'm not making that, that connection at the time. But um, there is this huge emotional component. And so when we hear about anyone who's listening to this right now, they hear about like I could never do a plant-based diet. Like that's, you know, I have to have my packaged foods. I, uh, I could never just eat meat. Like a lot of that just has to do with emotion, right? Conditioning and emotion, and yeah, I think that. And if we look at this, I mean, we talked about this earlier. I think processed foods are these sort of like 
they're, they're, they're really affecting our brain chemistry in radical ways. And I think once we get away from processed food, that falls away. And whether it's a plant-based diet or an animal-based diet, I think both of those are going to affect our brain chemistry in much better ways than processed food and are going to really help people understand what the processed food is doing to their brain and how they might be using that processed food to deal with these emotional issues that Rich is suggesting. Yeah. Yeah, if I could just say one more thing about that. I mean, to the to the listener out there, I saw a a tweet recently, and it went something like, "I go on the internet or I go on Twitter, and there's all these people saying that I should eat a carnivore diet over here, and then over here, there's all these people saying I should eat a plant based diet, but then I go out in the world and all I see is donuts, right? So <laughs> there is which are technically pumped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If if uh, well, not if it's made with a lot of butter and no, like oil, yeah. lard, or whatever. Um, there perhaps will be a small swath of people listening to this who will ultimately adopt a carnivorous diet or a plant based diet. But I would venture to say that the mass, mass the vast majority of people listening, um, will fall somewhere in between, right? And I think it's important to communicate to those people because. These are the people that are out eating donuts that are um, uh, uh, so disconnected from self that they don't realize that they're using food you know, in an emotional way. And just to kind of break that chain, um, I think is, like I said earlier, is a really important step in just beginning this process. And I think that some of the, the best applications for these types of diets, whether they're plant-based or animal-based, are for people who don't find the relief or get to the place they're looking for by doing the first step, which is cutting out the donuts, you know, cutting out the processed food. But I think that the processed food and the intentionality around food and looking at it, the way we're using food for entertainment is the first step. And if, if that doesn't result in the health outcomes that we want, then there are other steps that we can pursue. You know, there are other modifications we can make to the diet and those take us, you know, further along the sort of continuum. And that's probably the place where people need to get. But if people are feeling good and doing well in their life, like who's to say they should change what they're eating, you know? Um, well, how do you cook when you're on the road? Do you have like a George Foreman grill with you or what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> no, I just like, uh, pretty similar to Rich. I just try and get an Airbnb that has a, a kitchenette and, okay. you know, I'll, I'll just cook there and it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I mean, the things I, I eat personally, and I think there are people in the carnivore movement who are able to do this in a much more sophisticated way, but you know, I'm just, I'm probably more Neanderthal than, than homo sapiens, you know? And so I, I don't get very focused on, you know, the way I'm preparing the food. I want to cook the steak well, you know, not well done, actually rare, but I want to just make the steak take reasonably well. And I want to, you I was, know, I was hopeful for a minute, like finally some steak I can eat and you have to burn it in order to like Why? enjoy it. No, I, 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 I just don't have the palate for it yet. What? Wow. All right. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't find it that hard to cook when I'm on the road and um, I just cook in the Airbnb or something or fast. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have some more questions here. I'm going to read them from patrons. Uh, Madeline asks, uh, question for Rich Roll. What do you, how do you respond to the great protein debate? My five-year-old son uh, prefers a mostly vegan diet. Nuts and fruits and raw vegetables make up the bulk of his daily intake. He will eat dairy or eggs or meat if coaxed, but doesn't prefer them. And I personally would be excited about his health if he was fully vegan. But his grandparents are consistently worried and question me about his diet. Um, I, I mean, my my daughter would prefer a mostly candy diet. So I think <laughs> preferences play a role in this, right? But, yeah. but, but also... Um, it's up to us to, to, to guide our kids. How have you worked through this with your children? Uh, so you want to answer the qu the kid question? 
yeah. or or just the protein question. Well, I think I think it's both, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's protein with respect to kids. Well, let's talk about the protein thing first. Okay. Um, you know, when we're talking about protein, we're really talking about amino acids, right? So what are there? There are 32 amino acids. That's how many? You guys are the scientists. I'm just an athlete over here, right? Uh, and there are nine essential amino acids, which are the amino acids that our bodies cannot synthesize on their own and we need to get from our food sources. Um, I believe that the recommended daily allowance of protein is something like 0.8 grams per kilogram, uh, which is pretty easy to meet. Uh, if you are grazing on plant foods mindlessly, uh, you're not going to have a problem meeting that threshold. Uh, the World Health Organization actually set it at a much lower threshold. Uh, and I don't know any uh, doctors that are treating patients for a protein deficiency. So I think there's a lot of confusion around protein intake. Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I don't think, oh, I need to eat a very protein-rich meal. I just kind of eat the way that I eat. And I've never had any trouble uh, building lean muscle mass, staying you know, fit, and, uh, and, and being competitive in, in my discipline. So I think, um, I think that the emphasis on protein is misplaced. And uh, I think if you're just focusing on eating lots of different plant foods close to their natural state, unprocessed, that you're gonna be just fine. The bigger issue is the socialization issue around this and dealing with um, you know, people that either don't understand or have different opinions or feel like they hold sway over the choices that you make specifically with respect to parenting. Mm -hmm. And that can be tricky. You know, that's like a dance. That's like, you know, ballet trying to uh, parent the way that you want to parent uh, while also being respectful to the grandparents. In yeah, our own case, to yeah. Like, I mean, when Ella goes to play with the neighbors, I see she, they, she comes back with fruit roll-ups and I'm like, why are you giving my kid this this poison essentially I mean uh, although noting I would eat cases of fruit rolls myself as a kid um, so so when it comes to when it comes to well specifically Madeline's five-year-old son it sounds like he he tends to have a preference for more plant-based foods how do you handle this with with your kids well we've just always used food as a means of homeschooling for our kids uh at a very early age i got four kids i have two older boys that are 24 and 23 uh, and i have two daughters that are uh, 15 and 11. Um, so my transition um occurred uh well the, when the boys were relatively young but they were eating omnivorously up until that point and it's been a slow tra family transition towards more plant-based diet in the wake of like my making that leap um and it's it's not like a perfect thing like every one of my kids has a different relationship to food so i can't like lay some kind of template on top of this and say you're going to do this this way from now on out um, and we've never made any demands upon our kids like it must be this certain way we just try to educate them as best as we can so when we go to the farmer's market or we go to the grocery store um, it's an opportunity to talk about why we're getting this food and why we're not getting this food um, they want this and we have to explain why we're not getting them that and then when we bring the food home they help put it all away and at a very early age we taught all of them how to cook so there's a sense of emotional connection to the process and with that comes um, self-esteem and pride when a young child knows how to prepare a certain thing that they like to eat 
then that's what they want to make, mm -hmm. right? They like to make it. It's almost like they can show off, like, look what I made. Yeah. Um, and that's a really cool thing. Uh, but you only have, as they, as they start to get older, you only have so much control over their environment. They go to school, they go to their friend's house, uh, and we've never been parents to say, when you do this, you can't do this, and you can only do this. I think any kind of um, um, rigidity around that kind of thing creates uh, stress and anxiety in the kids, that creates socialization issues, and also um, paves the way for rebellion later on in life. So we're like, do what you want to do. Like, this is how we eat at home. This is why we eat the way we do at home. When you go to your friend's house, you're going to do what you're going to do, and we're not going to tell you what you should or you shouldn't. But when they have a stomach ache from too much cake at the birthday party or whatever it is, pizza, on the way home, we can have a conversation about that without judgment, without shame, without anything other than, well, let's keep the channel open so that we can have this kind of frank conversation around food. Because I don't really care what they eat when they go to their friend's house. What I care about is what their habits look like as they mature into adults. It's the it's the long game that uh, most interests me. You said something early on in the beginning that you said it's not going to be a perfect thing, and I think that's what we need to figure out. And I think that's what we're, that's what Madeline is is striving for here. Is like I would like for it to be exactly this the, this template that has to fit within these these constraints, and it might. 50% of the time, 80% of the time, 90% of the time, but there will be times where, where you go outside of that. Now, Tommy, is is it important for kids to eat animal products when they're, when they're growing up? I'll admit that my bias says yes. Um, my job is to create healthy developing brains. That's essentially what I research. Um, and there are so many things that a, a developing brain requires that are easier to get from animal foods. Um, however, that is no, there's, there's no direct judgment on people who prefer not to do that. But there are case studies of um, parents who have gone too far and their kids have you know, severe deficiencies or diseases because of it, or the kids have even died. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what's going on here, I'm sure. I'm sure that, um, there's, there's much more intention to those foods, but um, just eliminating those foods from the developing kid's brain has been shown to be detrimental. Um, and that's that's just what I worry about. However, um, ch uh, choice, and if, if a kid gravitates towards healthy whole foods that tend to be plant-based and everything is going well, again, like we've talked about, I have no, um, no, no reason to say that that's not the right approach. Mm -hmm. um, but for the developing brain particularly, I think there are a lot of, you know, we talked about omega-3s, incredibly important. And if you're not somebody who's good, you know, DHA makes up a significant proportion. That's one of the long chain omega-3s. Significant proportion of the fats in the brain is like required for your synapses to function. And if you're not somebody who can genetically turn omega-3s um, or just isn't in plants into the, the long chain version, just isn't very good at that, there's, there's a potential for a deficit there. But if you know he's developing well and he's healthy and all that stuff there's there's no reason to change so um i when you look at other cultures or people you know less westernized cultures um animal products do make up a lot of the developing um kids diet uh, frequently and they sort of they prioritize that but again there's you know there's there's no one way right one right way to do it that's just the way i've kind of interpreted everything i've seen so far and i would uh yeah i have some opinions on this as well. I think if we, it's just, it's, I just want to clarify the difference between plant proteins and animal proteins. So the FAO used to use this score called the PD-CAS 
and they've revised it to be something called the DIAS, which is the Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. And what we see when we use the DIAS score, and again, this is the FAO, this is the UN, non-biased, is that the plant proteins are often overestimated in the amount of usable nitrogen. If we look at plants and we look at the amount of nitrogen in plants, the amount of protein in plants, the amount of usable nitrogen is less than what we believe to be there because we're overestimating looking at non-usable nitrogen sources of plants, of protein in plants. And so I think that it's- a, we have what, to, When people talk about bioavailability- A little bit of bioavailability of plant protein versus animal protein. So in terms of a DIAS score, which you know the, the DIAS score for animal proteins is 121 and for plants it's about 67. So you know, relatively speaking, I think that if you had, if you looked at a plant food and it had 10 grams of protein and you looked at an animal food and it had 10 grams of protein, that 10 grams of protein in the animal food is about twice as usable as the plant protein, just looking at this DIAS score of usable nitrogen. And the other thing that's different is the amino acid composition, kind of going back to this idea that I was suggesting earlier, that plants and animals are different operating systems and the animals have different arrays of amino acids. When we eat animals, we're getting a balance, we're getting a ratio of amino acids that's much more usable for a human. There are certain amino acids that are triggering, that are needed, that are very good for muscle growth in children. And those are probably the branched chain amino acids, specifically leucine is particularly anabolic. And so it's very important that we get enough leucine to get an anabolic signal for growing children. And to get enough leucine to do that is fairly challenging on a plant-based regimen unless we're doing things like large amounts of pea protein because there's just not a lot of leucine in plants. They don't use leucine in the same way that animals do. They don't actually have muscles that work like ours with actin and myosin fibrils and things like this. So animal foods, I would argue, are much more similar to humans and provide composition of nutrients like amino acids, which are much more A, usable, and B, ratio specific or ratio compatible with humans, making it much more likely or easy to get what you need. If you were going to use plant foods, I would have real concerns about protein amounts and protein amino acid ratios. The other thing is that I'll just mention that the 0.8 milligrams per kilogram, I think is really much the, is the bottom end of protein requirements. There are people in the world who have kwashiorkor, which is you know protein calorie malnutrition, and that's, that's a real starvation. thing. Well, that's protein malnutrition, not star. I mean, it's both, right? It's essentially provoked. I mean, you only, it's where you see the distended bellies in you know starving African children. Inadequate. It's amino not acid. an issue in the developed world. Well, it's but it's a real possibility if we limit the bioavailable amino acids that we're giving to people. I find that very people. difficult to believe. And like Tommy is suggesting, you know, if we're having kids and we're talking about development, if we don't give them adequate things, this can affect their entire lifespan. And then I think the protein thing is a is an important issue even for adults. You know, people go on ketogenic diets and they lose muscle mass because they limit protein so much in favor of fat to achieve ketones. And so personally, this is my anecdote, you know, I lost 25 pounds when I went on a raw vegan diet. And again, I wasn't cooking my food, but I was, I was unable to physically ingest enough plant protein. And I was not grazing. I was like gorging on plant foods and I was unable to ingest enough to maintain the muscle mass that I had. And then when I reintroduced animal foods, I gained weight back immediately with, I would, I would believe the highly, the more highly bioavailable amino acids. So I think this is a big issue and something that we have to kind of be pretty careful with our discussion of. I can say the thing that when, when, I, when I see Ella, I think there's one, one thing that should be reiterated. And I think it has to do with what Rich said. Like when we're instilling the good habits in them, uh, it's reiterating those. When I see Ella go reach for you know a, a can of sardines, you know she's five years old, and I see her reach for or some blueberries, 
as opposed to like you know just wanting cake for every meal or whatever like i'm 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 happy about that, but I also express the fact that I'm happy that she's making good decisions. And I think ultimately what you were saying there, Rich, is um, we're trying to instill this ability to make good decisions so that when they're not un- when kids aren't under our supervision, they're at a friend's house or you know eventually they go out on their own, they can continue to make good decisions for themselves. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. All right, a couple more questions here before we wrap it up. Um, we really need to get back onto this topic about sustainability or the the sustainability for the planet. So Diana says, what does a minimal diet look like? Uh, according to the experts that you're having on your show, um, I want to eat what's best for my body and for my digestive health with minimal impact on the environment. So um, let's talk about this because this is this is where I struggle when I when I think about when I think about eating meat, it's impact on the environment, which we already touched on a little bit, but also just the idea of killing other animals so that I can live seems not, I, I think I think we'll get to a point eventually somewhere in the future, maybe it's once uh, Memphis Meats or some company like this with, with manufactured meat where we don't have to kill animals. Oh, he's, he's terrified of this, so we'll get if to that. If you about sustainability, those manufactured meats are an absolute disaster. Oh, I mean, okay. the amount of energy that's required, the the amount of work that it takes to create that. Um, if you instead had a cow on a pasture in terms of impact on the environment, it's much, much less. So it's the, the amount of work that goes into creating those manufactured meats, you know, is, is more impactful on the environment than a sustainably um, ethically raised um, cattle. What about compassion? Is, is there such thing as a compassionate um, carnivorous diet? Absolutely. I think that one of the things that we have to remember is the way of life is that in order for something to live, something else must die. This is what we do in our lives. And whether we're eating plants, whether we're consuming animals, like we have an impact on the planet. And to imagine that a plant-based diet is killing less animals is to be separated from the process of raising those plants, to be separated from the process of harvesting those plants, to be separated from the soil quality and the ecosystems that we're destroying. I appreciate the sentiment that we do not want to harm animals, uh, you know, unnecessarily or in excess or with malice, but I think that we really need to just kind of step back and realize that in order for anything to exist, whether it's a shark, a lion, a chicken, or a brontosaurus, in order for something to live, something else must die. And that is the way that life works. And we're all a part of that. Mm -hmm. And we will all die at some point and become recycled into the ecosystem. And so I think that whether we're eating plants, whether we're eating animals, we should do so with attention to the sort of the sacrifice that that life has done for us and what that means for us at a responsible sort of personal level in terms of how we're going to live our lives. I spent a season hunting when I lived in Flagstaff and I was bow hunting. And that was one of the most impactful things that I'd ever done because it forced me without a gun to stalk the animals carefully, to spend time with them, to understand what it was like to be around them. And then when we actually killed an animal, I had to look at that animal in the eye that I had killed. And there was this immediate flash of like, wow, that was an incredible thing that I did. And I have a real responsibility to live well because this animal is going to feed me as a human. But 99% of us are so removed from that. And I think our only exposure to, to cows is the cellophane wrapper that is in the, uh, the, the grocery store, right? I think that if we got closer to the animals that we, would eating, we were eating, we would live our lives differently. We would realize that we, in order to live, something else must die, whether it's a cow, a chicken, 
you know, a plant, the, the animals that are in the field that are killed as we harvest plants, you know, there is something there and we're disconnected from that as humans. And I think that that's a piece of human spirituality that we're missing and that it's important to bring that back and know that to be alive is a, is a privilege. And that, that weighs on how we live our life, the decisions we make, the kindness that we bring to the things that we're doing every day. We are fed by energy that's around us. And no matter where that's coming from, I think we have to appreciate that and respect that and try to keep that awareness in our lives and live lives according to that. Rich, it sounds to me like you didn't embark on this journey first because of the ethics involved, although it became apparent to you that uh, that was a big part of it. And it, it seems to me it's it's a big part of why you continue yeah, to eat it's, this. It's become, this it's become a, a very important piece in the puzzle for me. And I would agree that um, being born into you know a human life is a privilege, and with that privilege comes a responsibility, a responsibility to be mindful about the choices that we make, not just our food choices, but all of our consumer choices. And I look at being vegan, being plant-based as an aspiration. Certainly, I have a carbon footprint. I have an iPhone. I, you know, I fly in airplanes just like, you know, most people do. And I don't sit atop any kind of ethical pedestal and I, uh, and I, you know, carry no judgment for other people's choices. I just know that for me, um, I aspire to reduce the amount of impact that I'm having and that choice to opt out of animal agriculture um, and being, you know, complicit in, 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 in the killing of an animal because I have taste buds that prefer a certain kind of food um, feels good to not participate in. That doesn't mean that, you know, I have no carbon footprint, um, but I think, you know, on an emotional and a spiritual level as much as anything else, um, that's something that agrees with, with me. Yeah, I... I um we already answered a question from Kathy, but she, she brought up a good point. And it's the reason I wanted to bring all three of you on here today. She said, I often, I've often said that nutrition is more controversial than religion. And then she goes on to ask a question that I think we've already answered. But I will say this, like the reason that it made sense for me to bring Rich in here and to bring Paul in here is a lot of people on both sides of this debate, if we can call it that, this conversation there's a, a certain religious fervor. Um, I can think of a time, we did an event in Cleveland um, a couple years ago, and afterward, we do a hug line at the end of, of each event. And so these three ladies waited till the end of the event, at the very end of the hug line, several hours later, it's past midnight at this point, um, to essentially accost me and ask me why I wasn't a vegan. Um, and But the way that it was posited was in a way that was in the same tone as if she, they, the woman, woman who came up to me, she, she might as well have said, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Um, and to me, like that, what, the proselytizing is not a, a helpful way. One of my best friends is a pastor, and we often talk about how um, you know, the guy with the, the megaphone, the bullhorn out on Hollywood Boulevard, He's not really helping or, or converting anyone. And I see the same exact thing on the carnivore side. I see guys like Frank Tufano who are um, at vegan rallies eating raw meat. Oh, well, his friends are eating raw meat in front of this. Uh, and I'm like, 
do you think that's helpful? And what I appreciate appreciate about both of you guys, and especially with, I mean, Tommy already knows this, like you're trying to help people solve problems and you're using the answers that you have that have worked for you. You've seen them work for countless other people and there is not a dogma behind it so much that you can, so, so, so you're able to remove the, the sort of ideology to a great extent behind it and you found a, a recipe, so to speak, that works really well for you and that works really well for you and you've seen it work well for other people and I appreciate that about you. There is not... It, it's not a religion for you. And by the way, I think if either one of you are presented with with new evidence, you're at least willing to to consider it and uh, not dis, not just dismiss it. And that to me is really important for uh, for having a conversation like this. Otherwise, I think it's it's impossible. I I've heard both of you do debates with with other people before, and I just don't find it to be helpful for the people who are listening. Um, it's like listening to Sam Harris, mm -hmm. who's been on this podcast before, but d debate a, you know, a, a Catholic priest or something. It doesn't, I mean, it can be entertaining, but the same way a train wreck can be entertaining, right? So um, let's finish it out with this. Can, uh, we, can I just interject here? Yeah. Can we clarify the environmental stuff? Because I just want to, I, I think this is a great platform to really discuss this for a moment for people. Yes. I think that we should not, I've seen, you know, people suggest a number of things about animal agriculture. And I just want to disabuse people of many of these notions when we actually look at the science. The, the arguments, I think, and I appreciate where Rich is coming from, but I think that if we really dig into the science, a vegan diet is not has not been shown to be better for the environment. And I would argue that a plant-based diet, plant-based agriculture alone would be catastrophic for our environment and our um, ecosystems. When we do monocrop agriculture, when we grow soy or corn or any plant alone, we destroy- Everything that we're feeding to the animals right now. Well, Most of the land right now, a tremendous amount of the land, something like two thirds of the amount of agriculture in the United States is devoted to animal agriculture. Like, the, it's at, just, the, at the same time, those those three crops do make up like 70% of the calorie intake of, the, of, of, of Americans. So, I mean, like in terms of total volume, yes, but that's also what we're eating ourselves. And it's going into everything. It's going into ethanol. And we all agreed earlier that we are not trying to push feedlot agriculture. What I am talking about is well-managed, grass-fed animals, ruminants grazing on the land. That is a very regenerative process for the environment. That we can, don't have enough land to support that for every American to eat that way. We absolutely have enough land because what we can do is we can use land that can be rehabilitated. In terms of arable, tillable land, we've used everything we have. We don't have any land that we can grow food on, grow crops on anymore, but we have lots of land that we can grow as, graze animals on. And that can increase the carbon carrying capacity of that soil. So and as we mentioned on the companion episode, the actual relative contributions of plant-based and animal-based agriculture are essentially equivalent with animal-based agriculture actually being less than plant-based agriculture. The other thing is that if we're looking at long-term strategies for sustainability on the planet, I think everybody wants that. You know, everybody wants a planet for their children. There are some extremely compelling arguments about natural grazing of animals. Alan Savory, many other people suggesting that this can be regenerative grazing of animals. And if we remove ruminants from land, what we are doing is stripping the topsoil and destroying the ecosystem. The ruminants take in water, they hold that water, and then they put it back into the soil. So if anyone's looking at water estimates for ruminants, they're grossly overestimated 
And the cows are not nuclear reactors. They don't destroy water molecules. They drink water, and then they urinate it back out in a way that preserves the topsoil because otherwise there would be erosion of the topsoil and runoff of all that water. They're also returning to the environment important bacteria and nitrogen so that the soil is a better quality so that more plants can grow and hold more carbon in the soil. So this idea that plant-based agriculture or plant-based diets are in any way, shape, or form better for the environment is something that needs to be very clearly challenged. That is not the case if you look at the science. It is not clearly the case. And I appreciate the intention there, and I want the same thing, but I think if we're looking at the science and there are climatologists and uh, livestock scientists and plant-based scientists and people in non-biased organizations looking at this now, and I think this is a widely misconstrued notion that animal-based agriculture is bad for the planet in any way, shape, or form. Everything we do has a carbon footprint. Everything we do. And the animal-based agriculture, I would argue, is perhaps the only way that we are going to increase the carbon-carrying capacity of our soils and reduce greenhouse gases in the long term. All of that land right now that is being used to grow food for the animals... What if we converted that land to growing food for humans? Fine with me. Then we graze the animals everywhere else. I don't see a problem with that. We can feed the humans plants, but the problem is right, that if we're growing food, where it's two steps removed, right? And if we're we're growing, growing these. We're growing all of this food. Then we're feeding it to these animals. Then we're killing these animals, right? So the amount of resources required to support that system is untenable, and it's an ecological disaster at the moment. We're looking at so we're sort of competing you, ecological uh, disasters. So you're, you're painting this picture of this sort of utopian, you know, grass-fed universe in which cows are roaming freely. Right now, as you know, like they're cramped in these factory farms, and it's a you know it's well, a disaster, but. To, to, to the idea that suddenly we're going to be able to convert like all of the United States into like grazing territory for these animals, it would it would require all of the land in the USA in order to have enough acreage to support that. I don't think that's the case. And what we're doing with monocrop is destroying the soil. This is a historical well, we're, thing. We're in agreement on monocropping, but I a big part of monocropping is also in agreement on like. Um, um, you know the cafes, the the industrial, yeah, the right. industrial animal agriculture. Like that is a big point of agreement as well. I, I, think, I think we hold on one second. Here, here's how we're here's where we disagree. That we we disagree on what is ideal, right? But we all agree on what is not ideal right now, right? Is is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think today we're going to come to an agreement where where. Um, Paul and Rich agree on what is the most appropriate use of, of the land in the United States of America. Um, but to, to say that our current system is definitely broken, right? Um, and our current system is, the, is by far the least sustainable of all the options we're talking about right now. Uh, uh, whether it's, it's the factory farming, whether it is the monocropping, and uh, we, we have a, a significant problem here. We have two potential solutions, I, and I wish we could A, B, test them. I don't know that they're necessarily equally, you know, uh, that they're mutually exclusive. I think that we need plants and animals to create an ecosystem, but we need both. You know, and I don't think we're talking about eliminating all plant agriculture. Right. And I don't think we're talking, I think that it, and I think what I'm also trying to suggest is that eliminating all animal agriculture would be a catastrophe. Um, so I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I just think, as we're saying, you know, feedlots are not great. The other point I'll just add is that 
cattle spend 85% of their life on pasture and the cattle that are in feedlots are only spending the last 15% of their life there. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I would like to see that completely eliminated, but cattle that are raised on grain and corn spend 85% of their life on pasture. And some cattle spend their whole life on pasture. So we just need to talk about what we're, clarify what we're talking about there. Okay, okay. Uh, Best resources for doing your own research was a question from Ashley. We're gonna end with that. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say this. Um, I would encourage you to check out all three of these gentlemen's platforms here, whether it's Rich Roll and the Rich Roll Podcast, you can find that at richroll.com. Paul Saladino at Paul Saladino MD. You can find uh, his podcast, paulsaladinomd.com. His podcast is YouTube channel, social media. And Tommy and Chris over at nourishbalancethrive.com. You can check out the Nourish Balance Thrive podcast as well. Gentlemen, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for what you're doing in the world. I think you're really good people with great intentions. And I think we didn't solve all of the world's problems today, but we're one step closer to having uh, plant-based folks and and animal-based folks at least uh, getting in the same room and talking together. And that is a a beautiful thing because I think, what is it, 97% of the world... um, is omnivore at this point, right? I mean, I don't know if that's the exact stat, but it's probably pretty damn close. Tommy, fact check me on that. I honestly don't know, but I imagine you're you're about right. I'm it's in the probably ballpark. More, I, my guess is it. Uh, yeah, once you, um, yeah, if you're including all animal products, yeah, you're probably close to 99%, I'd imagine. There you go. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I'm really grateful you decided to spend this time with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Minimalists. <laughs>